You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. This morning we'll be in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of, Jew- of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, happy New Year's Eve, everybody. That's right. So in God's providence, uh, as we're rolling into a new year, we are studying a passage today I think is exactly what we need to understand and then bring into our lives as we look at a new year. So today, just a forewarning as we're going through these very few verses, I'll just say on the front end that this is a very heavy teaching Sunday. So I hope you grab your coffee. If not, it's too late. You're going to have to just pray and ask the Spirit to help you. But uh, I, w- I want to really think critically today. Uh, and so I want to invite you to think critically with me and to challenge you to spend great energy today seeking to understand what the Bible is teaching in this passage because you won't do, I won't do what we don't understand. If we don't have a comprehension of the thing that Jesus is telling us to do, we're not going to do it, at least not do it very effectively and at least not do it very well. So we need to seek to understand what the mission of the church is. The mission of Jesus that he is summoning us to participate in. And so here's the three points for today. First, we're gonna cover the backdrop of the mission. This grand mission has a backdrop. This is the what of the mission. What are we situated in? What's the context? This is the what of the mission, the backdrop. Then second, we're going to talk about the method of the mission. This is the how. How do we proceed forward? What do we do? How do we effectively carry it out? And so in this second point, just again as a forewarning, I'm going to try to develop a biblical missiology for us. We're going to do some biblical theology, and then we're going to talk implementation, practicing, how to actually do the mission. And then lastly, thirdly, We're going to talk about the ultimate aim of the mission. What is the thing we're aiming for? What's the goal that we're trying to achieve here? So the backdrop of the mission, the method of the mission, the aim of the mission. Sound good? I like it. All right, good energy. So let's start with the backdrop. If you remember our last sermon in John two weeks ago, we observed that John captures Jesus' resurrection as this new creation event. He's the only gospel author who records that Jesus' tomb was in a garden, in an unused tomb, and he was mistaken as a gardener. All those details show us that this is an echo of Eden, almost like a, a recapturing of Eden. And so now we continue through the story, and we see that this new creation theology, this backdrop, it remains, verse 19. I'm just going to read the first few phrases here. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Stop, pause. As you read that, what does that remind you of? What scripture maybe comes to mind as you read that phrase in the evening of the day, the first day of the week? What you should 
recall is Genesis 1, where it says it was evening and then morning on the first day. That's when God started creating in the evening and the morning and the first day. So there's this clear touching point with the creation story. And remember, this is still Sunday. This is the day Jesus rose. And John is phrasing things in a way that parallels the first day of creation. So we're supposed to see that this is the first day of Jesus's new creation. It's like a new creation has been launched. It's upon us. And Jesus is the one who's launched it. And the parallels continue as we read the rest of the story. I'm not going to read verse 21, but you'll see that Jesus sends the disciples into the world, doesn't he, in verse 21. We'll explore that more in the next point, but that should remind you Genesis 1.28, where God, after he creates the world as a place to inhabit, he commissions the first pair of humans, Adam and Eve, to go out into the world, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the world, and exercise dominion over it. So there's a parallel there in verse 21 with Genesis 1:28, And then in verse 22, John writes, read this with me. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, there's actually a ton of debate about this verse, like what this means, what's Jesus doing here. But it gets clarified when you realize that in the Greek, in the original language, when it says that Jesus breathed on them, it literally just says he breathed. Uh, translators, for some reason, supply the words upon them, but that's not actually in the original language. So the best way to read this is Jesus breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that they're going to receive the Spirit at Pentecost in the future. And when they receive the Spirit, they're going to go and preach the gospel of forgiveness. We'll talk about that later. But here's the question. Why would John write, he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit? Why would John write that detail that Jesus breathed? this statement out. It's kind of strange. But I think it only makes sense when you interpret this in light of the new creation theme that's heavy so far in John chapter 20. Because this brings our mind back to when God breathed creation into being and breathed the breath of life into all creatures, breathed the breath of life into Adam. So all throughout this little passage that we have here, there's all these parallels with the creation account. We're absolutely supposed to see that Jesus' resurrection resets time and brings the world to a new beginning. As if this is the first day of creation and the world is a blank canvas loaded with potential. Big idea here, right? This is monumental. New creation, first day of a new beginning. But something else we need to notice is that the backdrop of this mission, this new creation mission, it also takes place in the ordinary I know that sounds strange because Jesus is launching this new creation and we're reading that this is the first day of a new creation, but keep reading with me in verse 19. Look what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, if you're reading this as an original reader, this is actually really humorous. Like you start chuckling because Jesus just, just, appears suddenly, passes through walls with his friends who are in hiding, and he says, peace be with you, which is the most common Hebrew saying of the day, shalom. It's just the common greeting. It's what you'd say as you pass someone in the streets or as you purchase somebody from, from someone in the market, just shalom. It's the most common idiom of the day. So Jesus, 
he shows up all of a sudden, boom, right there in front of his friends, kind of, you know, frightening. And then he chooses to say the most down-to-earth, common thing. So it's kind of funny. Now, we've had some engagements and marriages in this church recently. Ladies, imagine if walking up to your soon-to-be fiancé, like at that moment where he's going to get on his knee and begin his speech and say whatever he's going to say and the anticipation's building. It's the climax of the whole relationship. You're about to get engaged. And he begins his speech by saying, so, what's up? That's sort of like what's happening in this scene. Jesus passes through the walls of their hiding place and essentially says, what's up? And what we're supposed to see is the resurrected Jesus is very human. He hasn't changed and become some inaccessible and pious divine figure. He is divine, but he's also the same human and Hebrew Jesus, just immortally resurrected and Lord of the entire cosmos and defeater of death and sin and Satan, but still very human. And the ordinariness of the scene continues in verse 20. Look at, look at verse 20. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus, he's very human. Nail-pierced hands, spear-wounded side. It's him in the flesh, human. <laughs> and just to bolster this point, we're not going to read chapter 21, but if you go to chapter 21, you'll see that Jesus, his disciples, they go back to fishing. They're in the middle of the lake, catching fish. And Jesus is on the beach doing what? He's making them some breakfast. Everything about resurrected Jesus is very ordinary, very human. This is very run-of-the-mill stuff. And I just want you to remember, okay, in this time when you're writing a document this massive, like the Gospel of John, you don't spill ink for nothing. You don't waste parchment. It's, it's, It's expensive. Every single detail and every single word that you're writing you're choosing to write very carefully. Everything is very intentional. John wants us to see that this monumental reality of the first day of a new beginning is situated in the ordinary, in the mundane, and in the common of our very normal human lives. So the backdrop, we're talking about the backdrop of the mission here, okay? The backdrop of the mission is nothing less than a new world loaded with potential. And that potential, it's tapped into, you position yourself to do it through the very ordinary, through the very common, through your very just day-to-day lives. I think that's what John wants us to see. The mission of God is taking place in this new creation backdrop, but your everyday life integrates into it. So, Now, how do we like proceed forward? Now what? What's the method of the mission now that we know the backdrop of the mission? So first we'll get talk some biblical theology and then we'll talk implementation, practicing, if you will. So verse 21, go there with me. We'll continue on. Jesus uh, said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, in the same manner, In the same way, I'm sending you. As the Father has sent. Underline that word, sent. That's going to be the focus of our study right now. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. What I want us to do is set all our minds on this verse because this mind serves as this gateway to a deeper study of biblical missiology. 
And so we're going to do this in biblical theology right now. The word for sent, that word you underlined, it is apostello. Everyone say apostello. Very good. Now, what does that sound like? Like, what, is, what word does that sound like that we use in our common, you know, Christian language? Oh, that's right, apostle. That's where we get the word apostle. An apostle is a proper noun, obviously, like this is the verb, but the proper noun, apostle, it's someone who witnessed the resurrected Jesus and was specifically commissioned to go to a place where the resurrection was not known and the church did not yet exist And they were to bring both to reality, knowledge of resurrected Jesus and this thing that he started to call the church. So the apostles, they were the 11 disciples. You know, Judas has already left the scene. 11 disciples. Later on, one was added named Matthias. And then even later, Paul. So 13 apostles were the original crew. And then that is it. There were were no more apostles after that. It was a temporary season in the church's life. The apostles were sort of the bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so there's no more apostles today, just like there's no more prophets today. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. He says this, This is how one should regard us, talking about the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, in your New Testament, you see the word mysteries of God, that phrase. That's talking about the special revelation of God, doctrine of God that's been revealed ultimately in Christ and then through the apostles, through their writings, through their, you know, how they formulated doctrine. And so that's the task of the apostles, to reveal the mysteries of Christ that's been clarified in Christ. And then a few verses later in verse 9, he says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. So there you have it. Paul understands himself, the 13th apostle, the last apostle to be made an apostle, as the last of all the apostles. After them, it's done. There's no more apostles. So the office of apostle, capital A, just like the office of, of uh, prophet, capital P, no longer exists. But I do think the gift, the gift of apostleship does continue. And the reason I think that is because if you study this word, apostello, if you study this word in the New Testament, you'll see that it's used always to describe People who purposefully move from one context to another. Okay, so I'm going to read for you a few verses here. It'll be on the screen behind me. Track with me. Hebrews 1, talking about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits, apostello, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels sent from heaven, God's presence to earth to minister from one context to another. 1 Peter 1. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent apostello from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven, from God's presence to earth to indwell us. And then in Jesus' monologue, remember John chapter 17, that long prayer that he makes Jesus describes himself as sent, apostello, six different times, sent from heaven to earth. And then John 17, 18, Jesus prays for the disciples who will become the apostles. He says, as you sent apostello, me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Same word used there twice. So Jesus is sent from heaven to the world. The apostles are sent from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the knockout punch. Romans 10, 15. 
Paul writes. And how are they to preach unless they are apostello, sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So you're seeing what, you're seeing what I'm seeing here? This progression throughout the New Testament of sentness. Angels are sent from one context to another. The Spirit is sent from one context to another. Jesus was sent from one context to another. The apostles are sent from one context to another. We are sent from one context to another, purposefully and skillfully sent from one context to another. As we talk about apostleship, there's one classic, probably one most famous passage on apostles, which is Ephesians 4. I'll read it to you, verses 11 through 12. Paul writes, He gave the apostles... The prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So like I said, apostles are no longer functioning today. It's no longer an office that's available today. But in a sense, the gift of apostleship. There are those who are gifted with this ability to pioneer the gospel from one context to another, and they are a gift to the church. So I think it's right to say that there are those who are gifted at apostolic ministry, bringing the gospel and the church to a place where neither exist or, or where both are barren. And if that's your gift, then you're really good at pioneering the gospel to places that really, really need it. I was meeting with a missions pastor this last week who was telling me about a man in Nepal who only a few years ago, he was pastoring one single church and then just the gospel started exploding, and now he has planted over 2,000 churches in just 2,000 churches in just a few years. Just the gospel's moving powerfully through the area that that man is in. The same kind of explosions happening in the underground church in China. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in South America right now. Now we tend to think that Christianity is an American religion when we're one of the most irreligious nations right now. And so while the Christian demographic here is shrinking, the gospel, globally, it's exploding. There are leaders in China and Africa and South America and all over the world that are literally pioneering the, a gospel movement from city to city and village to village. So I'm just talking here about people who are gifted with this unique ability to pioneer the gospel. They have this apostolic bent in them. And so some other people that you might come to mind when you think about this apostolic gift. You should think of Paul, you know, first century Paul who started multitudes of churches for Jews and Greeks and Gentiles. Or think of Martin Luther, the reformer who began literally a new gospel movement in his lifetime. Or think about Charles Spurgeon who planted over 200 churches in his surrounding area. Or think about the late Tim Keller, who brought the gospel a gospel movement to urban cities and planted tons of churches. And that's just famous names throughout history. There are tons of people, names that we'll never know, who are pouring themselves out to pioneer the gospel into places that are barren, that are totally absent of the gospel. You should think of BJ, our missionary in Sweden. We don't talk about this much. We're going to talk about it a lot more this year. He's doing incredible, incredible ministry in Sweden, seeing unreached people groups, people who've never heard the name of Jesus, you know, influxing into Sweden as refugees and coming to faith, seeing Swedes, like the national Swedes in Sweden, totally a post-Christian society, coming to faith. There are countless leaders whose names we'll never know who have this unique ability to put up the sail of the church and catch the wind of the Spirit and pioneer the gospel into spiritually barren places. So there are those who are really gifted at this. But 
even though there are some who are uniquely gifted at apostolic ministry, I'll tell you this. Every Christian, every one of you, are called to apostolic ministry. Every church is called to apostolic ministry. Because just like every gift of the Spirit, just like every gift of the Spirit, just because it's not your, the best thing you're at doesn't mean you're off the hook. Just because you're not good at hospitality doesn't mean you shouldn't practice hospitality. Just because you're not good at preaching doesn't mean you shouldn't maybe preach you know, from time to time. Just because you're not good at uh, administration, that's one of the gifts of the Spirit in the Bible, doesn't mean you shouldn't have a well-ordered life. Hey, we're not off the hook just because it's not, just because you're not, not that person pioneering 2,000 church plants. All of us are called to apostolic ministry. Now, often churches with bad theology use the word apostolic, and so churches shy away from using that word, but I think we should take it back because it's entirely biblical that we should be an apostolic church, a sent church, taking the gospel to places where it's barren. And so that's what you and I are called to, to skillfully bring the gospel into every space that we can imagine, cities and schools and neighborhoods and nonprofits and collaborative business ventures, the arts, politics, education, every space that you can imagine, the church is called to pioneer the gospel into those spaces, any space that's spiritually barren. And so here's what I want to challenge you with. You ready for this? The time is ripe for an apostolic movement. You know, Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther both went on record and said that the church will know when there's going to be an apostolic movement when two things are taking place. First, when the church is apathetic and in decline. And secondly, when the surrounding culture is just unraveling. That's when God always seems to bring about a fresh work and bring about this apostolic movement through the church through everyday Christians. Those are the two qualifying things. Apathetic church, unraveling culture. Does that sound like our time? And so the time is ripe for an apostolic movement, and I want you to feel the urgency of that. Perhaps God is calling this generation, you and me here, to be a part of a fresh, powerful work of the gospel in our time. I want you to feel the urgency of this new creation potential that Jesus is commissioning us to carry on his work and he's with us always to the end of the age. But at the same time, don't forget that this monumental new creation, you know, uh, apostolic movement, we're talking huge idealistic terminology, it happens through the mundane and the ordinary. We're talking about pioneering the gospel into the place of your work or your extended family's living room or your kid's soccer game. So are you ready to put up your sails and catch the wind of the Spirit? Since he's working all around you, you don't need to go far. You need to go to your neighbor. You need to go to your place of work. You need to go where you go just every single day to do this apostolic ministry. So hope you're ready to do it, ready and willing to skillfully pioneer the gospel into lostness. So that's the biblical theology, okay? The church is called to apostolic ministry. Just as he is sent, Jesus is sent, so are we sent. But you'll notice that I've been using words like we're purposefully sent and skillfully sent. It's very possible to do a bad job evangelizing. It's very possible to do a poor job, an ineffective job at bringing the gospel to places where it's not there. 
Imagine if a missionary went to a post-Christian society like Sweden, for example, and began preaching at people without knowing the language, without knowing the customs, without knowing their presumptions, without knowing what obstacles might be there, without knowing their sensibilities, and so on and so forth. That would be ineffective, wouldn't it? And look, here's, here's the reality of the situation. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they are post-Christian. They don't share the same word bank as you. Like they think Jesus Christ is his first and last name. You know, pe- people around us, they didn't grow up the way we did. 80% of people in Annapolis did not grow up in a religious home and will not be at church today on Sunday. 80%, 8 out of 10 people you meet are not religious and so, truly, we're, we're sort of in a post-Christian setting right here, right now. And so your theological language, your presumptions, it won't match where people are at. And so we have to do this well. We have to pioneer the gospel to people who are far from God, skillfully and purposefully. And so to do highly effective apostolic ministry, we have to learn the skill of contextualization. I won't make you say that because it's, you know, a tongue twister, but contextualization, okay? Let me tell you what this means. It's not giving people what they want to hear. Tim Keller defines contextualization as giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. Sound contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and particulars of the gospel itself. The great missionary task is to express the gospel message to a new culture, yet without removing or obscuring the scandal and offense of biblical truth. That is what you and I are called to, to contextualize the gospel, to adapt it, to translate it, to bring it to other people's level and build from there. So I know that's still challenging, right? I know we're, you know, contextualization, that's, you know, part of this method of the mission. But I think when we talk about evangelizing and reaching those who are far off and contextualization, Oftentimes, this is better caught than taught. If you're learning how to change your oil, for instance, it's more helpful to have someone show you than read a manual, right? So as you read verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, it's helpful to have a model, to see this you know, in flesh and blood, to be instructive for us on what contextualizing looks like. And so my mind goes to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word logos, you know, for Jews and Greeks alike who are reading this, John chapter one, the logos is the inaccessible transcendent divine logic. And what John is saying is that the transcendent and inaccessible has come to us us to our level and revealed who God is, his grace, and his truth. The incarnation is is our model of contextualization. In order for God to reach us, he contextualizes himself 
Athanasius. You know, we, we recite the Nicene Creed every time we gather. Athanasius in the fourth century, defender of the Nicene Creed, he writes this in the Incarnation, in his book on the Incarnation. I told you to bring your coffee. Get ready. Here we go. He breaks down the Incarnation like this, or this is how he sees it. For as a kind teacher who cares for his disciples, if some of them cannot profit by higher subjects, he comes down to their level and teaches them at any rate by simpler courses. So also did the Logos, the Word of God. For seeing that men, having rejected the contemplation of God and with their eyes turned downward as though sunk in the deep, were seeking about for God, like they were grasping for God in nature and in the world of sense, feigning gods for themselves of mortal men and demons. To this end, loving and general Savior of all, the Word of God takes to himself a body. And as a man, and as man walks among men and meets, here's a key, a key idea, meets the senses of all men halfway. He meets us where we are at. So men as they were, and human in all their thoughts, on whatever objects they fixed their senses, there they saw themselves met halfway. And he taught them truth from every side. For this cause, he was both born and appeared as a man and died and rose again, that in whatever direction the bias of men might be, wherever any person might be at, from thence he might recall them and teach them of his own father, as he himself says, I came to save and to find that which was lost. What Athanasius is teaching here is that Jesus' incarnation, it's the model of apostolic ministry. He moved from heaven to earth, and in doing so, he comes to our level, uses our language to reach us. He appeals to our senses. He uses our customs, our culture, our idioms to relate to us. He finds common ground with us and then leads us to the Father from there. In short, the incarnation shows us that God established common ground with us to reveal his grace and to reveal his truth. So you and I, we're commissioned with the same, with the same thing now, to move out in the world apostolically, imitating the incarnation, using all of the creative energy that we have to find common ground with other people. Can I give you one more example of this? Would that, would that be all right? One more example. All right. In Acts 17, Paul, you know the story, he arrives in Athens to a place that is absolutely barren of the gospel. He's walking around this urban metropolis city and sees all of these idols to different gods, and it grieves him, it says. It provokes him to grief. And so he goes into the synagogue, and it says that he reasons, meaning he has this dialogue. He questions people. He listens to them. He answers their questions. He enters into a dialogue with people, with Jews and Greeks and philosophers. Then he goes to a hilltop, the Areopagus, where philosophers would debate and, and gather and debate. And he notices, again, all these different monuments to different gods, and he even sees one that says, to the unknown God. And so he begins to reason with his listeners, again, about this unknown God, and he makes his appeal to them by quoting their own philosophers and by quoting their own poets back to them to establish common ground and have a productive conversation that leads to the, prove, the proving the existence of God and the necessity of Jesus. You see here, Paul's imitating the incarnation as he does apostolic ministry. 
He's using all of his creative energy to find common ground that makes a gospel conversation possible. Uh, Tim Keller, again, in his book, Center Church, he writes that this passage, Acts 17, Paul in Athens, was, was the game changer for his ministry. And from it, he adapted three rules that his ministry was shaped by. And he says it's these three rules that, that he gives credit for how his ministry was really fruitful. Obviously, there's the power of the Holy Spirit and God's faithful, but these are the three things that he tried to implement in his ministry that led to extraordinary spiritual fruit. Here's what they are. It'll be behind me. Reason with outsiders by showing how our best aspirations and deepest longings are fulfilled in Christ, but idolatrous without Christ. Two, Speak unpopular truth, yet with patient, honest, open-to-feedback, thoughtful tact. Third, strongly contend for historic Christian doctrine with openness to common grace, things like the arts and industry and culture and music, whatever it may be, all in order to find common ground. He says it's those three things that shaped his ministry from Paul in Acts chapter 17, who is imitating the Incarnation, that led to incredible spiritual fruit. And listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, you are called to apostolic incarnational ministry. Again, we live, we live in a de-churched, skeptical, irreligious area. Annapolis, it's not culturally Christian. So we're doing apostolic ministry. We're pioneering the gospel. But remember, all you have to do to engage an outsider is to go to work or go home for Christmas or have your neighbor over for dinner or coach a sports team. An average day in your life, you'll come into contact mostly with outsiders. If you're a Christian, you have a great apostolic commission to imitate the incarnation by reasoning with others, showing how their best aspirations and deepest longings are fulfilled in Christ, speak unpopular truth with patience and thoughtfulness, and contend for the faith with winsomeness, all in order to lead to a gospel conversation. So go back to verse 21. Back to verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you as Jesus was launched from heaven to earth and contextualized God to reveal his grace and truth. We now in the same way are launched from our places of security and safety and ease and comfort out into the world to bring the gospel, to pioneer the gospel to people using their language, ideas to find common ground that lead to the gospel. Here's the challenging thing about this. It would be really nice to stay in our safe and easy Christian communities. It would be easy to wait for the world to come to us. It would be easier to insulate ourselves in the church and accumulate Christian friends and knowledge and expertise. But we are sent out of what is safe and easy into the world to put our knowledge and expertise to use and find common ground and guide people through conversation to the necessity of Jesus. And may, and may I be so bold to say something a little bit um, confrontational. 
This is not a recommendation. This is an expectation. Just as he is sent, we who call upon the name of Jesus are sent. This is supposed to characterize each and every one of our lives. So we don't stay in our our ivory towers where it's safe and easy and clean. We are sent out into the world to pioneer the gospel where it is not known. And you don't have to go far. Now, the method, pretty brilliant. Apostolic ministry, incarnational, contextualization, all these big words. Uh, but here's the thing, that's not, that's not ultimate. There's even something more ultimate, a higher aim in the grand scheme of things, which is this, to bring the far off into fellowship with God and into fellowship with his people. That's what we're going to see next, the aim of the mission, verses 22 and 23. And when he had said this, when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He says to the the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is John, John's great commission, if you will. Matthew has a great commission in Matthew chapter 28. This is John's great commission, if you will. They will receive the promised Holy Spirit. They'll be empowered for the task ahead of them, which is to bring the message of forgiveness and to build the church. Now, this language about forgiving sin or withholding forgiveness, right? Very debated, very controversial. What does this mean? Can the apostles really grant forgiveness and withhold forgiveness? So here's what it means. This is shorthand language for inviting people into genuine, reconciled relationship with God, who then, by the genuineness of their repentance and conversion, are brought into the life of the church through baptism and then the ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper. Or having those privileges withheld on the basis of either no profession or a false profession. So in the case where there was not genuine repentance, the apostles would not bring that person into membership through the church. They would not baptize them. They would not offer the Lord's Supper. They would withhold forgiveness, if you will. Or if someone proved their profession to be fraudulent after a period of unrepentant sin, that person would be removed from membership of the church and forbidden from taking the Lord's Supper. Again, they would withhold forgiveness. And we see the apostles do exactly this if you read the book of Acts, if you read their writings in 1 Corinthians 5, for example. They were emphatic about keeping the integrity of the church by preaching the true gospel and bringing only genuinely converted people into membership within the church. That's what Jesus is tasking them to do here. That's what he means when he says, grant forgiveness or withhold forgiveness. Bring them into the life of the church or keep them out of the life of the church because the integrity of the church matters. So see here that the method of the mission, incarnational apostolic ministry, it serves the aim of the mission, which is to bring people into genuine, reconciled relationship with God and then into the life of the church. I really like J.I. Packer's definition of evangelism. Here's what he says. To present Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to sinful people in order that they may come to put their trust in God through him, to receive him as their savior and serve him as their king in the fellowship of the church. 
Now, I really like that last line. That last line catches my eye, in the fellowship of the church, because the aim of the mission is not just to convert people, not just to lead people to a genuine profession of faith. That's really important, but it's more than that. It's to bring people into discipleship in the church, into the life of the church, because we're not just calling people to repentance, but to discipleship. Jesus' invitation, like we read at the beginning of church today, is to come and follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And that's not just a sentiment. That's hard. Jesus didn't lower the bar to just new belief, but higher, to new devotion. We say a lot around here, Jesus does not require perfection, but he does require devotion. And only in the community of faith, only in the church, will you grow and be held accountable, and be sent, and be trained, and be equipped to take part in the mission of Jesus. The church, it's God's appointed infrastructure where you and I will be kept, and strengthened, and sent. So there's a backdrop of the mission, this new creation, a new beginning, a method, apostolic, incarnational ministry, but there's an aim, which is to bring people into genuine repentance, but also into the community of faith, into the life of the church, where they will be kept and loved and sent. So, we're concluding now. But I have two points of application that I want you to walk out of here committed to. All right? First, first, we need to change our mindset. Each and every one of us need to change our mindset. Like I said, Annapolis is 80% unchurched. And that's an old statistic. It might be even more now. I haven't looked in a few years. If you're a Christian, you need to understand that you are in the great minority. Because of the call to apostolic incarnational ministry, because of the reality of lostness, it is time to consider yourself not merely a Christian, but a missionary. If you're a Christian, you're, you're in such the minority right now. It's so urgent. The time is so urgent. The time is so ripe that it's time to cease thinking of yourself only as a Christian and begin thinking of yourself as a missionary, as one sent, as someone who's doing apostolic ministry. That's what this urgent time calls for. That's what this new creation calls for, a complete paradigm shift in your brain. And so... Because we are apostolo, sent. Anytime you're going to work or going to see your family or going to see your friends, you're not going somewhere anymore. You are sent somewhere from now on. Everywhere you go, one step at a time, you are sent. That's how we need to think from now on. So whether you're conscious of it or not, if you're a Christian, you are bringing the gospel into a place barren of it, so you're pioneering a work. You're a missionary. You are sent. We need to have a mindset change. Second, I was on a group call recently with a bunch of pastors and leaders in the area, and we were praying and talking about contending for revival and awakening in our time in in the area. One of the leaders on that call said something that, that altered the way that I think about revival. He said, we don't need something monumental that's going to muster all Christians to surge out in radical mission. That's unlikely going to happen. 
He said, we need each and every Christian to take just one step of faith, to put themselves out there just a little bit, like one micro decision, one actionable thing that positions them in the mission of Jesus. He said, can you imagine, like just imagine this with me, if every Christian throughout Anne Arundel County just decided to do one small actionable thing to better position themselves in the movement of God, like that would actually be revival. <laughs> that would actually have results. That would actually be fruitful. This week, what's one small thing, one actionable item that you could do to better position yourself in the mission of God? Could you line up a meal with somebody? Could you take someone out to lunch on your lunch break? Could you make a phone call? Could you send a text? Could you play a pickup game? Could you schedule a play date with your kids? Could you pay for someone's groceries in the line? Can you actually show up to a social and not be an introvert, you know? Do something. Just one small, actionable item in your life to better position yourself and what God is doing all around you. So, we have a backdrop of the mission, a method of the mission, and an aim of the mission. We're called to partner with God in what he's doing. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come before you and we're thankful for your word which charges us and holds us accountable. We're thankful for your spirit who empowers us and comforts us and leads us. And Lord, we ask that you would bring people to mind who you want us to reach out to, that you would help us change our mindset and consider ourselves not just merely as Christians, but as missionaries, as people who are sent, just like you, Jesus, were sent from heaven to earth. And God, we know that you're, you're moving ahead of us. That you're always at work around us. Lord, give us the grace to partner with you. Lord, there are so many people who don't know you. Such vast lostness all around us. Father, I pray that our hearts would break like yours breaks. I pray that we would see what you see. The fields are white for harvest. Pray that the Lord would send out laborers into the harvest. Lord, let us be those laborers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Send us, Lord, out into the harvest. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.